America knows only one 9-11, but actually there are two 9-11s. One 9-11 that most Americans know is a 9-11 full of destruction, it's a 9-11 full of hatred, it's a 9-11 that causes only grief in many, many, many parts. It's a 9-11 that has destroyed, in a sense, a part of America's soul. But there was another 9-11, a 9-11 that every Indian knows, a 9-11 that many people, millions around the world, remember with great joy and happiness, a 9-11 that can only bring us that ultimate truth, Satchit Anandam. You know, I like to tell people that His Holiness the Dalai Lama, when asked what is Buddhism, often says Buddhism is kindness, it is compassion. And that's it. You remember that much and that is enough. So somebody asked me, and it came from that moment, when somebody asked me, so therefore what is Hinduism? What is Hinduism then? And it occurred to me that Hinduism is just joy. It is bliss. Why is it bliss and joy? Because after all your anxieties, after all your identity issues, after all your body shaming issues and gender issues and, and neighbors envy issues and your political issues and your sociological issues, after all of that falls away, when you finally begin to see the light of the eternal Brahman, what are you? You're happy. I was talking to Swami Sattvapriyananda Ji, who's at the Vedanta Center in New York, and uh, we were talking to each other, and he said, when, you know, when Swamiji came to America, somebody told them, what is heaven and hell? How did you go to heaven and escape hell? And Swamiji said, I am not here to take you to heaven. I am here to liberate you from all of that. <coughs> I am here to raise you from all of that. And that is the moment where we must make an argument today in America that there is another 9-11. Because let us never forget that Swamiji Maharaj also spoke in this holy land of Chicago on another 9-11 in 1893 when he rose up and said, which no one before him had ever said and no one after him had ever said, he said, brothers and sisters of America, we will show you a new path. And he did show them a new path. He did show all of us a new path. A new path that did not exclude anybody. A new path that could only lead to happiness and to liberation. I'm here to argue before you this evening that we're on the right side of history. We just don't know it yet. It's the same argument that Swamiji made to everybody. He was asked, what about sin? What Swamiji was just mentioning right now. What about sin? Aren't we sinners? And he said, no, but actually, you're not sinners at all. You are actually every soul, every last soul of you. You're eternally divine. He said every soul is essentially divine. You just don't know it yet. We are also, as Hindus, on the right side of history. Why are we on the right side of history? Let's take all the contentious issues that you hear, not just in America, but around the world. Let's take them one by one. Where do we stand on gender? The Hindu never asked, only if you are in these, if you tick these gender boxes on your form, can you be part of our eternal bliss. We argue that it is something that you determine, what you feel is your gender, is a question that you need to answer for yourself. We are not here to tell you what your gender identity should be. You determine what your gender identity should be. We are in fact here to argue that gender is only one part of you. 
your real sales self is beyond all those identity markers. So we don't have an issue with gender. We don't have an issue with another big contentious issue in America, everybody talks about it all the time, the freedom of choice and the choice of a woman over her own body. The Hindus don't have a problem with that either. No Hindu ever went and told a woman what are the choices she can make with her own body and her own reproductive system. It is never an argument that a Hindu has ever made. If, if somebody went and told the Adi Shankaracharya, well, what should a woman do? He would say, Chidananda Rupam Shivoham Shivoham. You are talking at one level. I want you to go much beyond all of that and realize everything is Shiva. Everything is pure, unadulterated, uncompromised consciousness. So the level that you're talking about, it's not the level that... I mean, it's, it's entirely in the realm of what you want to do with your life. It's your choice. Then, we're on the right side of environmentalism. We have always been on the right side of environmentalism. It's today that every newspaper in the world writes that, you know, uh, the, the non-vegetarian diet, for instance, in many cases, is causing global warming. The Hindus don't have an argument on food at all. You eat what you want, but we have always known that if you truly understand what is good for the planet, you will adjust your diet according to, uh, in, in a manner and shape that would be most beneficial to you and would be beneficial to the climate, would be beneficial to the universe around you. You know, famously, if you read Vivekananda, he famously says in, in one moment, that we are not Puranists, we are not Vedantists, we are not Tantists, we are not anything. For hundreds of years, we have become don't-touchists. We have taken our religion into the kitchen. And he says, we have trapped our religion into the kitchen. Because all we are discussing is which hand should touch what thing and which hand shouldn't touch what thing. And we are far beyond all of that. So we don't have an argument on food. Our entire argument is on the basis of pure environmental laws, you decide, depending on where you live, what your lifestyle is, what is beneficial to the environment, you decide what you eat on the basis of that. In every contentious issue in the world, whether it's right to choose for a woman, whether it's gender, whether it's politics, our argument is the right argument. Because our argument is not an exclusionary argument. Our argument is an inclusivist argument. We are including people in our arguments. We are bringing people together in our arguments. We are asking people to come together in our arguments. We are not pushing people aside in our arguments. But so what, you will ask now, so if we are so good and we have so many good ideas, where did we go wrong? Why is it that and I, I say this in every lecture of my, you know, wherever I go, um, and I'm sure in the question answer session, somebody might ask me this here. In every place, somebody asks me, you know, we have all these problems, and there are these civilizational problems, and you know, people say these things about us, and so on and so forth. Koi kuch kyun nahi kar raha hai? Always, in every lecture, people ask me, koi kuch kyun nahi kar raha hai? Why isn't somebody doing something? Right? After I heard that about 10 or 15 times, I asked in a lecture, and then I've made it a point to ask in every lecture, please identify to me who is this koi? Who is the one who will do something? 
Who is that person? Who is the goalie who will do kuch? And I, I said this to a, to a monk one day and said, you know, so the, I, you know, people keep asking me this in my lecture. So he smiled and said to me that you should quote Barack Obama to them. I said, what do you mean? What do you mean I should quote Barack Obama to them? We are having a discussion here too. So maybe this is not political at all. He said, no, no, it's not about politics at all. You must remind them that Barack Obama once famously said, we are the ones they've been waiting for. So every time somebody asks you, Koi, kuch you should tell them, but we are the ones we've been waiting for. We are the Koi's who have to do the kuch. <coughs> I want to remind you, people tell me that institutional support is not coming. I want to tell you the story of a man in India who had no institutional support. He is the man because of whom all of you know Indian history. That man is called Anand Pai. If Uncle Pai had not brought about the Amar Chitrakatha, generations of Indians would have known nothing about their own history, or very little about their own history. He was that one man sitting and writing stories and putting them, putting shape around them, and making these lovely books, which millions and millions of Indians grew up with. Had it not been for that one kuch, one koi rather who was doing kuch, there would be no real popular movement of Indian history and culture and civilizational values. Then there is another argument whenever I say civilizational values, some people tell me, but what civilizational values are you talking about? We were nothing before 1947. We were not even a nation. It's a fundamentally wrong argument. And anybody who's read any political science knows it's a fundamentally wrong argument, even though it's of course repeated again and again. Why? Let me tell you why. For everybody who tells you this story, here's what they're thinking, or at least they should be thinking. They're thinking of nations in terms of the Westphalian model. The Westphalian model of the nation state came about in the, after the Treaty of Westphalia, which ended the 30 years of war of Christian Reformation in Europe. And that's why the construct of the Westphalian state was based on uniformity. What is a nation state? Everybody speaks the same language. What is a nation state? Everybody worships the same God. What is a nation state? Well, in some cases, everybody has not only the same language and worship the same God, but their skin color is also the same. Therefore, if you take that model, that European construct of a nation state, you can look at India and say, well, you know, every few hundred kilometers, people look different, they eat different food, they dress differently, their language is different. They even worship, if you don't understand Hinduism, they worship different gods. So how can you be a nation? But that's a fundamentally wrong way of looking at it. Because that is a European concept of the nation state. There is another concept called the civilizational state. And if you read political science, you know, uh, Martin Jacques and Jai uh, Weiwei, uh, the Chinese scholar, has written famously about this. Uh, and both of them have done a lot of research on this idea of the civilizational state. That some ancient civilizations derive their sense of nationhood not from this idea, this narrow idea of singular identity, but they derive their nationhood from their long civilizational history. If you read Diana Eck's beautiful book, um, India, a State of Geography, she makes this beautiful point, and many you know, Indian scholars have made this point too, that the, the idea of ancient, uh, ancient Indian nationhood or the idea of nationhood as imagined by the Indian ancients came from the footsteps of pilgrims. 
Because, you see, we have a cartographic imagination of our nationhood. What is a cartographic imagination of our nationhood? If you look at how, all the things that are written in our scriptures, they have geographic location. There is a Kashi that exists. There is a Mathura that exists. There is a Vrindavan that exists. There are the Dhams that exist. There, there is a Ayodhya that exists. These places exist even today. So we have a cartographic imagination, a map, a sublime map, which has been passed on from generation to generation of the construction of the idea of India dotted with holy places and in the way the pilgrim progresses, as it were, we imagine our holy land. It's a cartographic imagination of what is Bharat, what is India, right? And this idea has been there from time immemorial. You know, it's a, uh, in one conversation, I was having this conversation with somebody, and I asked them, tell me, you know today that there is Vrindavan, right? But how do you know it? So they said, well, my parents told me. But how did your parents tell you? How did they know? Well, their parents told them. But how did their parents know? Well, their parents told them. Generation after generation, in a civilizational nation, the idea of the nation is passed on from generation to generation as collective memory. It is the memory of our ancients which is mapped onto the basic geography of India. Every location has been mapped out that these locations are direct references from our holy books, which are direct references from our mythologies, which are directly fed into our history, which are directly fed into our mythology and has built our idea of nationhood. That is a civilizational nation. It is very different from the uniformity that the Westphalian model suggests. We are a civilizational nation. We are a nation because our ancients imagined this civilization that was built on the spiritual values that is dotted exactly, literally, on a map from holy place to holy place. That's why you remember some of the greatest uh, Indian messengers, so to speak, Hindu messengers, whether it's the Adi Shankaracharya or Swami Vivekananda himself, what did they do? They traveled across the length and breadth of the country. And it's its commonality. Dadi Shankaracharya did the same thing. Vivekananda did the same thing. Right? Separated by hundreds of years. But why are they doing this? Why are they, when they're beginning to search for the truth, why is it necessary for them to go and traverse the length and breadth of the country? Because that is the imagination. That is the imagination, you see. They're traveling from point to point to the length to, and, and across the length and breadth of the country because the idea of India to them is a civilizational idea. It's an idea that's mapped across the entire geography of India. And that's why, in order to understand the soul of India, you have to become a pilgrim. Because the idea of pilgrimage is so deeply intertwined with the civilizational notion of India. It is, it is the way we have imagined our nation in the manner that the pilgrim, pilgrim proceeds from one place to the other. And when the pilgrim has gone through the entire journey, when the pilgrim rests, all the questions also rest, and that's when the truth is to be found. There's this beautiful moment when the English uh, traveler, Paul Brunton, meets the great uh, Hindu monk, Ramana Maharishi. Ramana Maharishi, some of you might know, spent most of his time in silence, 
on, on the hill where he used to live. And uh, Paul Dutton goes to Dr. Maharishi, and he has all these questions, right? And he begins to ask the master all these questions that, you know, what is going to happen to Europe? When will war come? What will happen to our world? Will all nations go to war? Will we survive? How will mankind survive? All of that. So the master heard him for a long time and then turns to him and said, but who's asking these questions? And Paul Dutton said, what do you mean? You can see me. I'm sitting here right in front of you. I'm asking these questions. And the master was silent for some more time and then turned to him and asked, but who are you? And at that moment, in that moment, Paul Dutton writes, he felt that all his questions melted away. He suddenly realized that he didn't have any more questions any left anymore. The questions had all disappeared. And he realized the only way he would be able to answer that fundamental question is by truly discovering through the length and breadth of India, the true soul of India, which would of course help him discover his answer and his soul too. That is the imagination of India that we treasure. But all of these things, you would say, if we had all these interesting ideas, so valuable, so precious, why have we lost it? Or why does it seem like we have lost it? We have <coughs> lost it because we have not spent enough time explaining to new generations that that's why I'm so happy. I'm always very happy when I see young, very young people uh, in, in the audience. Because we haven't often told a whole new generation what on earth is their legacy all about. You see, a lot of people ask me, A, a lot of people think until they've met me that I'm much older. So everywhere I go, people are like, oh, you are Tim Uh and, and somebody, a, an elderly gentleman actually even told me this. You're so young. What are you thinking of all these things? Like, aren't you too young to be thinking about God? So I was like, well, you know, and, and I, I was about to give a lecture that day, and, and I had a lot of young people from you know, schools and colleges so, um, and, you know, I, I, I told them, uh, and the gentleman had just asked me this question, that aren't you too young to be thinking about God, that Swamiji Maharaj, Swami Vivekananda, he was the ultimate rock star, I like to tell my younger audiences, and that day was the first time I said this. And somebody said, why, why do you say that, why, why are you saying that he's the ultimate rock star? So I said, see, apart from all these wonderful things he knew, he knew the other great thing that rock stars must, must know. What is that thing? that you must die young. All rock stars, you know that they pass away young, so their legend lives on, right? So he was the ultimate rock star. It was a funny way of telling this elderly gentleman that please don't forget that one of the greatest masters was with us very for a very short duration, for an extremely short duration, right? His work literally was basically in a decade. He summed it up all in one decade and left us very, very early. So age really is irrelevant. It's about the search that you feel. Right? And it's very important to explain to younger people why this is interesting. Because you see what happens is, and I was just saying this in my Columbia lecture, because I do a lot of research at Columbia Business School, so um, I was telling a lot of the people who have come to listen to me, that after you've found your hedge fund job and after you've bought everything and you've bought your Porsche also and you've bought your whatever Lexus also and you've bought your Tesla also and you've bought your first house and your second house and your third house and your fourth house and you've bought your houses in India and you've bought your houses in America and 
you have you know shopped as many times as you want to after you've done all of these things you realize at some point you begin to ask what am i doing all these things like where is it taking me like what's going on and religion is not something to me not something so esoteric and distant that only when you come to a particular age you begin to now you know think about these esoteric things religion is very simply the search for meaning why am i doing what i'm doing why should i have a career why do i want to be a hedge fund manager why do i want to build my own startup why do i want to go to silicon valley why do i want to buy that Porsche or that tesla why the moment you begin to ask that why you realize that begins your search for meaning why what is it doing to me and hinduism is really unique because remember hinduism never says give up everything it says you can if you really find meaning in that Porsche or tesla or whatever or your startup or hedge fund job or whatever it is you should do it the problem begins when you begin to identify your eye with all of those things and i saw that in television when i used to work for many years in india that the job became you that you appear at eight o'clock or nine o'clock or seven o'clock or whatever time you appear on prime time on tv that became you so even if you hated the job at some point you could never leave it because that was you the day that went away you had no identity because you had suffused the identity of i with that identity so you were that job you are that car you are that home you are that success you are that money you are those material possessions whatever it is and the idea of hinduism is that you can have all those things but that's not you and you will truly be able to enjoy all of those things also when you don't mix your identity with it and this is you know my my family has been worshipping the Ramakrishna mission has been part of the Ramakrishna mission for generations now and that is the most wonderful thing I have found in the months of the Ramakrishna mission that you tell them Maharaj I will take you to a five-star hotel they will say I really don't want to go necessarily but if you really press to them and say one day I really want to take you they'll go if you tell them I have nothing to offer you I will just give you batasha which is this Bengali little discus of sugar and water this is all i have to offer you with equal happiness and joy they will take that also there is no attachment to that thing there is an attachment that you are feeling happiness in a common search for meaning they will bless you to that fight to find that meaning but whatever you be able to provide or not provide is something that they are not attached to which is why they have no happiness if you give them a lot of things they have no grief if you don't give them anything. They are sublimely not attached. That's why, you know, one of the great months of the Ramakrishna mission, when he won the Infosys Award for mathematics, if you Google, you will see uh, Mohan Maharaj. In the, in the mission, we call him Mohan Maharaj. Um, he, his work is in topographical geometry. So he also won the Sloan Fellowship, which uh, half of the people who have won the Sloan Fellowship in the world have gone on to win the Nobel Prize. So he was asked by NTV in India, you know what is God, and uh, I mean he will always amuse. You should see that interview. Through the entire interview, the monk looks sublimely amused at all these questions that have been asked to him, right? Because the answers are so simple to him. But the reporter, as always, is trying to egg him on and say, "Oh, but what is this and what is that?" So they were like, "Oh, but what do you think about God?" 
He said, no, mathematics. And then Mona was really fascinated. What do you mean? You know, like, but he says, no, you know, whatever you do with complete devotion, you will see divinity, right? Anything that you do with purity, anything that you do, you will find divinity. So I do my mathematics with sublime divinity, with sublime concentration, and therefore I see divinity. You might do something else and see the same divinity. But there is no attachment. So as always, the reporter also asked him, so now you know you won this award, there's a lot of money that will come, what will you do with it? And he was like, well, I mean, I'm not going to do anything. You set up a charity and that charity, there's somebody else to handle. I'm really not good at these things, so they will handle it. There is no attachment. He was not doing his mathematics, hoping to one day win a prize and get lots of money, obviously. Right? He was just doing his mathematics. So this sense of doing everything with a sense of liberation is, I think, what defines the Hindu idea. And all these, you know, people say all these battles that we are going through and this, that, and the other. Somebody asked me, I was giving a lecture to George Mason a couple of days ago uh, at George Mason University in DC, that, well, you know, but what about all these clash of civilizations that are happening around the world? So I laughed and I told him, you know, like they say, this bipartisan and post-politics, India is a post-clash of civilizations culture. The West is realizing clash of civilization. Now we are, we are over and done with all of that. We have gone through clash of civilizations. Now we must move beyond that and look at new ideas. I think there is a fundamental deficiency in the way we have told our stories. We have not been able to tell our story well. So in the same George Mason University, somebody told me, so how do we tell our stories better? So I told them, and I won't repeat that to you. Then I think Hinduism needs the Dale Carnegie formula, which is win friends and influence people. Because this is our real task. We have to win friends and influence people because we are we uphold one principle which brings the world together. We are consistently talking about ideas that bring the world together. We are talking about ideas that moves the conversation forward. Are we being able to do that properly? is the question we should all ask ourselves. There is an example that I want to give to you, which about five, seven years ago, I was thrown out of a restaurant in Delhi. Why was I thrown out of this restaurant in Delhi? Because I made the grave mistake of wearing to a posh Delhi restaurant a kurta pajama and a Gandhi jacket. And at the door, the doorman told me, ye to, ye to I would, we will not let you enter. And I said, why won't you let me enter? And he said, ye ke nahi you can't enter with these clothes. And I was like, what's wrong with my clothes? They're perfectly formal. And they were perfectly formal. I was wearing a very formal jacket, a Nehru jacket, and a Kurta pajama. And they said, no, this doesn't fit the, the code, the dress code of our restaurant. <laughs> so I wrote this, and if you Google it, you'll find this. I wrote a long essay about this called uh, Indian anyone in the Hindu newspaper where I was a columnist at that time, making the argument that, think about it, we have converted all our clothes into costumes. They're not clothes anymore, they're costumes. They're costumes that we wear once or twice a year. Right? And not just in America, everywhere. Indians have con converted, the Hindus and Indians have converted all their clothes into costumes. 
So special occasion comes, then I will wear it in clothes. Of course they die out, right? If you ever meet me in, in Delhi in summer, you will realize I only wear hoodies now. I go to work, I'm, I'm a journalist at the Fortune magazine. I go to work in a movie too well. And it is, no one has ever told me anything, no one has challenged me, no one has thrown me out, I still have my job. But it's because the problem is in the head, you see. The problem begins when I begin to think that if I wear this, it's again my identity, right? What are people thinking about me? We've destroyed 5,000 years of textile history because we've made it costumes. If you read the great Roman historian Pliny the Elder, he's mourning that the coffers of Rome are being emptied. Why? Because the Romans can't get enough of all these things that are coming from Indies, from India. So what are the Romans buying from India? Gold and pepper and spices and fine jewels and fabric. But what kind of fabric? Pliny the Elder writes, fabric that is so fine that it's like a wisp of smoke. Could we destroyed all that, all that technology, all that innovation, all that craftsmanship? Because we've converted all of this into costumes. We are ashamed to wear Indian clothes. We are ashamed to listen to Indian music. When I was, and I have to share this with you, when I first told a bunch of people in Delhi that I would write a book called Me Me Too, every one of them told me that is the end of your career. It's over. You've built a career after all these years with so much hard work. If you write a book called Me Hindu, it is over. It's finished for you. I was like, and I, I, I'm not joking. I was stupefied when I first heard that. I was like, you don't even know when I'll write. I'm just telling you, I just want to write a book. I've written six books, I just want to write one more. I'm only telling you I want to write a book called Being Hindu. You don't know what's going to be in the book, you don't know what the book will say, you have not read a single line of the book, you're already telling me that I should never write it because it will destroy my career. How? How is this sensible? And, and then when, I, when they realize that I'm determined to write this book, they said nobody will publish it. Because in India, who publishes a book called Being Hindu? How dare you? How dare you? How dare India, you know, with 80% Hindus, write a book called Being Hindu? I mean, God forbid, right? And that convinced me that I must. It's the reason I wear a dhoti. If you tell me, you know, I'm very stubborn like that. If you tell me I cannot do something, I will do it. Well, so I wrote the book called Being Hindu. But this idea that anything that traces back to our civilization is something that we have to be ashamed of is a very deep-seated poison that has gone into our bloodstream. This is not to say Hinduism doesn't have problems, but everything in, the, in life has problems, right? If we were all perfect, then the world would be different. Of course Hinduism has problems, everything has problems. You know, the great Kapil Kapoor, um, the professor, the Professor Emeritus at JNU was once doing a video interview with me and I was doing this show called Being Hindu. And I was telling him, well, Professor Kapoor, you know, the problem is that a lot of people would say, well, what about caste, right? I mean, caste is such a battle for us. So he said something very interesting, and I, of course, write in more detail in the book about this. But first, of course, we had this long conversation about how, number one, if you look at all this evidence in India, Caste has only become weaker and weaker and weaker with every passing year. In fact, many people now want to hold on to caste to get certain benefits. Because the structure has become weaker and weaker. 
if you read the great, um, you know, um, Dalit economist Chandrakhan Prasad, if you read his writings, he talks very fluently and lucidly. You should read this, and I mentioned it in my writings also. Uh, this research paper that he did, uh, they did with Howard, which showed how liberalization, the free markets, have attacked and destroyed the caste system in many parts of India, especially in northern India, how it has been attacked and really the back of caste has been broken in many parts. But that's one part of it. But as an allegory, as this wonderful sublime example, he gave this wonderful example that I want to share with you. So he says, see, number one, the manuscriti is not a religious text. Nobody will argue, you go ask any person who understands this, nobody will say it's a religious text. And in fact, most Indians have never read the manuscriti. They have only heard that there is something mythical called the manuscriti which has a this and that. No one has ever read it. B, he said, even if some, there is something written in a very old book, A, it is not a religious text. Nobody, no one who understands anything about Hinduism will ever say that it's a religious text. It is a contextual, socio-political document of a particular time. Number two, and this is really interesting. So he said, we always assume that the man, as defined by Manu, right, which is the head is something and the body is something and whatever, and then there are all these castes and whatever. He said, you are assuming, Manu never said the man is standing up. What if the man is lying down? Because if the man is lying down, there is no problem. The problem is only when the man is standing up, you see. If the man is lying down, there is no problem. So why don't we assume that the man was lying down? If we assume the man was lying down, nobody has a problem. And nobody can go and prove that the man was definitely standing up. Because Manu never said the man was standing up. So he said, from today onwards, we should just assume the man was lying down. If the man was horizontal, there's no problem. We have an imagination. And we have an imagination of innovation. The most wonderful, heartwarming, charming thing about Hinduism, and of course about the Vedanta, is its ability to accommodate and think what we would today call design thinking. Thinking innovatively. Taking every context, because there's this chapter in my book called Is Religion Afraid of God? Right? Is Hinduism afraid of uh, sorry, is God afraid of science? Is religion afraid of science? Is Hinduism afraid of science? Because you see, that's the other big challenge. And you hear this conversation in the West a lot, that the atheists want to say that all religion is wrong. Right? And I have asked the question, you know, Richard Dawkins wrote that famous book called The God Delusion. I read The God Delusion from page, page, page to page through the entire book, and I have asked Richard Dawkins two questions. That in that entire book, you mentioned Hinduism only twice. Both of them are what we would call in journalism factoids. One, you say there are, in India, there are mostly Hindus. That's number one. Number two, you say when partition happened in India, there was some conflict between Hindus and in your entire book, saying the God delusion, you make no arguments that Hinduism does not agree with. We agree with all of these things. You say, oh, but it is very bad to say there is only one way, actually, the world is multicultural. You come to the Hindus, you come to the Vedanta, you say, okay, no problem. Then you come and say, oh, well, no, you know, you should not tell anybody that they are sinners. You come to us, you say, okay, no problem. You tell them, oh, but you know, you, had, you cannot say that science is wrong and, you know, there are certain things science cannot understand, you have to marry science and religion. We will say, but not only are we saying there is no problem, 100 years ago, Swami Vivekananda said the same thing. 
Swami Vivekananda said that if any religion cannot be seen through the prism of science, that religion should not exist. Because if you cannot even accept, what is the point? If you cannot even accept and contextualize modernity, that present moment, then how is that religion, how is that idea eternal? The idea of anything being eternal is that it constantly evolves to whatever context, right? You can throw it in any period of history and it will still work. Something cannot be static and yet be eternal. That's a, that itself is very a strange argument because anything static is bound, right? So anything that we're claiming to be eternal, you should be able to throw it at any period and it should work. And that's science, right? Because it's called constant progress. So his argument was that if you cannot, if the idea of God cannot even accept science, which is context, then what right does it have to exist? So we have no problems with that also. So there is no argument against us. The entire argument does not fit in when you bring Hinduism and the Eastern faiths into the argument. I mean, Sam Harris, Swami Sarkopiyananda Ji at New York pointed this out to me, that uh, Sam Harris in his great book um, called Waking Up, after all the arguments against religion, he essentially said, however, in the Vedanta and in certain parts of Buddhism, there are some ideas which are, which you cannot help but take into account. Why? Because we're not saying there is any problem. I mean, I recently heard this great lecture where, um, you know, the, 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 the Swami who was giving the lecture said, if you really asked Swami Vivekananda, if you went to him very angrily and said, I believe there is no God, he would say, okay, all right, let's have a conversation. If you equally went angrily to him and said, I am certain that there is God, how dare you say there is no God, he would say, okay, there is no problem, let's have a conversation. Because whether there is God or not, what you cannot deny is there is you. Because you are here, you are angry, you are saying this to him, you exist, you cannot deny. So Vedanta, that is enough as a beginning. You are here. So the next question is, are you here fully? Are you here with your full consciousness? Are you here completely? And the deeper question, so who are you? That itself is enough. It's enough for us to have a conversation. It's enough for us to take the conversation forward. Because we don't have much more than a theological argument. What we have is an argument of knowledge. You know, I have this dear friend who says, and I, I think it's a very beautiful thing. Many of you may be, uh, you know, saying the Gayatri Mantra every day, right? Or your children may be saying, you've heard the Gayatri Mantra being said. The Gayatri Mantra is a really special mantra. Why is it a special mantra? If you look at the entire history of prayer, how is prayer written and constructed? Why do human beings pray? And what do human beings ask for when they pray? You will see, if you look at the history of prayer, you take any prayer, I mean, you take any tradition, you look at prayer, they are usually asking for a few things. They are asking for protection of them, if you look at, you know, protect me from the implements, protect me from evil, protect me from this, whatever. Then, then they are asking for, to be given something. Please grant me a boon, please grant me this, please grant me that, whatever, right? Or they are saying, give me strength, that I should be able to do this, ability, an ability argument. Let me, give me power to do this, give me the power to do that. The Gayatri Mantra is sublime and really beautiful because the Gayatri Mantra doesn't ask for any of this. 
What does that stop? It has the illumination. Give me the ability to see. If you read the Bhagavad Gita, there is that beautiful moment when Krishna tells Arjun that you cannot see me with the eyes that you have. I will give you sight so that you can really see me. Right? That's why, and this is so beautiful, I always, it sort of gives me goosebumps whenever I think about this. That's why the idea of darshan is so important to us, right? You know, Dianayak writes in her book that the Hindus don't go to the temple to worship. They go for darshan, to see God. But what is that seeing? It's not just seeing, right? It's illumination, to see the reality of things, to see things for what they truly are. That's the most magical thing. But I, I, I would you know, ask all of you the question, how many people do you think who say the Gayatri Mantra every day explain this to themselves or to their children? Isn't it an interesting question to ask? I don't want to give you the answer, but don't you think it's an interesting question to ask for the millions of people who say the Gayatri Mantra every day, how many of them say this to themselves? Much more importantly, how many of them are saying this to their children? And if they're not, then how will their children be fascinated? How will their children be captivated? How will their children understand the entire legacy, the beautiful, sublime legacy that they are inheriting? Right? Because you have to make a scientific argument. You cannot just say, I'm the parent. And I, I'm saying this to you with, with, you know, with, with absolutely no sense of uh, shame, that if you came and told me that you have to be a Hindu just because your parents were Hindu, that's not enough. Because I'm not an engineer, my father was an engineer, is an engineer. Right? I'm not a doctor, my grandfather was a doctor. So if I am not my parents and their parents in many ways, why should I choose this just because my parents were Hindu? I am a Hindu because it is spoken directly to me. When I have read Swami Vivekananda, I have felt myself transformed. I have felt it is he's talking directly to me. That's why I'm a Hindu. It speaks directly to me as an individual, to my very core, to my soul, to the every morsel of my being. I want to end by telling you a story, and then I'm happy to have conversations that take questions. There is a wonderful moment in Indian history, maybe apocryphal, but I think the story is really beautiful and, and tells us a lot of things. Alexander of Macedon is on the banks of the river Indus. Alexander has conquered the entire of the whole known world at that time. And when he conquers, when he crosses the Indus River and he conquers what lies beyond Indus, he would have conquered the entire world. And what would happen at that point? He would be, he would do what even Hercules and Odysseus couldn't do in Greek mythology. He would have conquered the whole world. Right? Okay. So Alexander is on a horse on the banks of the river Indus. He comes to a tree and there is a sadhu, a mendicant, an ascetic, meditating on it, sitting under the tree. So Alexander is very surprised. He sort of gets off his horse and goes up to the sadhu and says, what are you doing? And the sadhu opens his eyes. And you know, in, in our imagination of the world, you see monks are always smiling. Right? We have very few angry monks. Our monks are always smiling. Because there is bliss, right? So the sadhu opens his eyes and smiles at Alexander and says, what are you doing? 
He says, what do you mean? I'm Alexander of Macedon. I'm conquering the world. And then he says, but what are you doing? What are you doing sitting under some strange tree? And why do you have your eyes closed? And what are you doing sitting here? And the Sadhu says, I'm conquering myself. <laughs> and they both laugh at each other. Because you see, in Alexander's viewpoint of life, there is only one life. And in that life, if you do heroic things, then when you are dead, you will cross a certain river and you will go into the land of heroes. That's your reward. And in that land of heroes, you will be privileged enough to meet for the first time your great heroes, Odysseus, Hercules, and all the great heroes of Greek mythology and history, right? That's your reward. You will be the next hero to enter the land of heroes. The monk has a very different way of looking at the world. In the monk's worldview, it's an eternal cycle. It goes round and round and round and round. And what's the point of it all? Figure it out. Understand. Understand yourself so that you can free yourself from the entire cycle. Understand it. Understand the meaning of things. And therefore, Alexander is conquering the world, and the monk is conquering himself, and this is the Eastern world. But we are in a magical moment, ladies and gentlemen. I want to tell you, there is all reason for hope and optimism. There is very little reason for only anger. There is great reason for optimism. There is great reason for good cheer. Why do I say this to you? Because just before I came to Chicago, and I was delighted to see that in Sweden, the Church of Sweden has announced that no longer will God be a he alone. After hundreds and hundreds of years of God only being he, the gender identity of Martha is being removed. Well, if the Church of Sweden came to a Hindu and said that, if you imagine if they came to Swami Vivekananda and said that, he would be like, but my master has been worshipping the goddess Kali for as long as I didn't know. In fact, he goes into ecstatic blisses worshipping the mother. So we are not surprised at all that you've come to the conclusion that God is not a he or a she, and we can't clap these identities on God. We are not surprised at all. If you truly want a cosmopolitan vision of the world, if you truly want a cosmopolitan future, if you truly want a future beyond the clash of civilizations, then the idea, the Vedantic idea of Hinduism must be considered. And please understand, we will never say it is the only idea. We will always say consider it. If you want cosmopolitanism, consider this idea. We are not saying you have to become something. You know, I, I met this wonderful monk who said, in a hundred years that our temple has been here, if today somebody comes and tells me, make me a Hindu, I get very scared. Because I don't know how to make somebody a Hindu. I don't know how to convert somebody into becoming a Hindu. I can only offer knowledge if it appeals to you. You embrace it. If it doesn't appeal to you, Godspeed. We wish you luck. We wish that God goes with you wherever you go. Right? But if you come and tell us now, make us. We have no injection to make you anything. Only you can make yourself whatever you want. So the cosmopolitan idea of Hinduism, the idea of the Vedanta, and the idea that divinity pervades everywhere in us is a sublime idea of the future. And I urge all of you to talk about this idea to everybody you meet if you can. 
and ask them to at least consider it. Thank you very much for the presentation. Thanks.